0: What up, Oasis people? Hello. Let's go, let's go. My name is Brendan. If it's your first time here, welcome. I'm glad to meet you. Uh, I am our college and adult pastor here at Grace Point. If it's not your first time, chances are you met me. <clears throat> but still, I'm so glad you're here, that every single week when you choose to join us, it's just, it's a blessing. So I hope we can bless you back, even just through simple things like this. And tonight we are starting a brand new series. It's going to be called You Are. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series called God Is. And it was just three weeks and it only scratched the bare surface of the character and attributes of who God is. But the reason we, we, we're moving quickly now onto this next series is because You Are is a series all about identity. And who God is impacts who you are. That's the beauty of these two series linked together. Is everything we just learned deeply impacts and feeds into what we're now going to learn. And so in this series, we're going to talk about identity. And Dylan just prayed about it. He talked about it. But God created us. And because he created us, he gets to say who we are. As you read through Genesis, you see each and everything God creates. But when he creates us as people, it's unique. Genesis one26 he'll tell us he creates us in his image. So these character, these attributes of God that we are learning, they apply to us. We're made to be like God. That's the beauty of what's going on here. And so in the next three weeks... We're going to spend time rooting our identities in God And as we root our identities in God We're going to learn learn about who we are in Christ But before we get to anything too crazy tonight I need you to check out these three pictures So go ahead and put up the first one Tech people Anybody have any idea who that is? Yeah, hit hit me with it That's Bronnie, LeBron James Jr. Good, next one Anybody? No, nobody's confident enough Her name is Ava Felipe now does it ring a bell? What if I tell you Reese Witherspoon's daughter? Ah, nice. Next one. Anybody? Kid from Holes. Kid from Holes. nice. <laughs> Jaden Smith, Jaden Smith. Now, maybe you knew some of those, maybe you didn't. And the chances are, if you knew one of them, why, why did you know them? Why did you know them? Check out this last picture. Who's that guy? No, nobody? Nobody's got any idea who this, what, what's the guess? Ben's kid. No, it's not Ben's kid. This is random kid. I just Googled, random kid on Google, so I don't even know who this kid is. <laughs> no idea, he could be anybody's child. But I put him on the screen because we don't know him. But the first three, we kind of have a guess. Maybe you recognized one of the three, and the chances are you recognize them because you know who their parents are. And really, when we break it down and when we look at it, they might have some success, I mean, we got holes, kid. We got we got all the different people. Every one of them has their own little thing that they're doing. LeBron's gonna. LeBron James Junior. is probably gonna play basketball. It's like destined, but they all have their own success. But really, when it breaks it down, we first knew them. Their whole life it will be marked by their identity of who their parents are. And as we talk about identity, we'll learn that it is impacted by our parents. That what they go through is really just on a grander scale than what many of us go through. Now, I don't know if you know this. I try to play pretty cool, but growing up, my dad was on TV. You guys know that? You guys have played it cool. Nobody's really approached me, freaked out. You know, my dad, Channel 16, local news in Sioux Falls. If you were really into city councils, you would have seen my dad. It happened on Tuesday nights, way after everybody went to bed. Nobody watched it, but he was on TV. And the chances are, your parents might not be as famous as mine, but going, going around town... You still were identified by who your parents were, right? Anybody get, oh, you're Jim's kid, Barb's daughter, Chloe's son. Anybody get that? Just walking around, I was Jeff's son, Sherry's daughter. And again, this is just showing us that we are impacted by who our parents are. Over and over again, this happens to us. Not only that, but the people who address us as such, they start to write identity about who we are, right? When someone calls you by your parent's kid, they're making assumptions about who you are as a person based on who they are. And so they start to assume this is who you are. But as you hear that, not only is it externally they're making assumptions, but internally you're making assumptions that I am that person's kid. I am like them. And family, it impacts our identity. And tonight we're going to address this family thing. And as big as a, a dynamic as family plays, it's only a piece of what makes you you. Like, if we were to sit back and we were to look at what of those other pieces, what makes you, you? Really, what, what makes you, you? Like, is it school? Is that part of your identity? Got any college students in here? I'm sure. School just plays a huge role that from the, the youngest of ages, you were enrolled in preschool and elementary school and middle school and high school and the college and maybe grad school and postgraduate school and school plays a huge part in who we are. And because of that, our grades sometimes dictate a little bit of who we are. That was my story. From the youngest age, I cared deeply about the grades I got. In elementary school, when it doesn't even matter, you're not even getting A, Bs, and Cs. It's like proficience and excellence. and Nobody's even actually getting grades. There's no report card, really. But I cared. I cared on how I did on spelling Bs and math charts. And I remember for the first time when I got my first B. Oh, it hurt so bad. Middle school, sixth grade, gym class. Are you kidding me, gym class? And here's the thing: this is the reason I got a B. I didn't like getting sweaty and then going to class. How messed up is that? They're like, go run three miles around the track and then go sit in math class. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So I got in a bunch of trouble and I got a B, which plays right into that next part of identity we'll talk about. Anybody ever been impacted by the way they look? This this attributes physically on the outside somehow determines who we are on the inside and what gives us value and worth. I struggled with that. I didn't want to sweat in gym class and it hurt my grades. And some of us, I don't want to get too real, some of us might lose our hair one day. Some of us, we might not age well. Some of us, you're sitting here thinking, I didn't even get lucky from the start. Like, you know, like that's part of the hard part is, is this looks thing, it's, it's, it's either positive or it's negative, but it's impacting who we are. Career, I mean, come on. We live in a culture where one of the first questions we feel okay asking people is, what do you do for a living? Right? This is, it's like, what's your name? What do you do for a living? And all of a sudden, because of what they answer, we start to make assumptions about who they are, because we think it impacts identity. You should see me walk into the barbershop, and they're like, what do you doing? I'm a pastor. They're like, turn the music down. Everybody get tight. Like, everybody's like, okay, I can't mess this guy's hair up. I'm praying for him. You know, it's like, it's, people get weird when they tell them I'm a pastor. But we also do a thing like... Anytime someone says they're a teacher, I feel like the response always that is, oh bless your heart, right? You must love kids, you're so nice. And we're making these assumptions about identity based on what they do. But come on, we all grew up with teachers, it's like how do you even get to work with kids, right? Like that teacher in elementary school where it's like, I don't know if you're certified to do any of this. Like it's just that, the craziness. Or relationships, anybody have relationships define who they are? Your friends are cool so you feel cool. Your friends are attractive, so you feel attractive. Your friends are successful, so you feel successful. That's just friendships, some of the people you pick. What have we got in the romantic relationships? That you've been single and you don't really want to be single, but all of a sudden you're stuck in your singleness and you're pursuing something else, but you're stuck in it and it's defining who you are. You're in a relationship maybe, significant other, single are dating, engaged, married and everyone around you can see it, but maybe you can't quite see it because you're so obsessed with this person, and they're forming deeply who you are. They're the one giving you identity. It's just a romantic relationship, right? Who are you? I'm gonna actually give you about 30 seconds, and I want you to take out a phone, take out a notebook. At one point, they were gonna put on some non-awkward music. Otherwise, maybe I'll just, like, hum for you or something. But 20 to 30 seconds, take it out. Write three things. One, two, three, right? Three things. Who are you? Who are you? Do we have sound for that, Bryce? He's shrugging his shoulders. Jane is out of town, so we're all lost here. But I'm going to give you 15 seconds, and we'll endure the silence. And as we sit in it, what are three things? If you had to pick only three, who are you? Are you a student? A family member, a brother or a sister? Is it your looks, your attributes? Just three things. Just write down three quick things for me. And as you do that, I'm going to give you a couple more seconds. We're going to reflect back on this list. But I wanted you to get it on paper. Because sometimes we have these assumptions, but we don't actually know. We don't actually take the time to to, to write them out, to process them. But who are you? And now as you look at your list, I'm going to ask you a second question. Does God have a say in who you are? Look at your list. Does God have a say in who you are? Because of the three things you wrote, I'm sure all of them are great. I'm sure they're fantastic. That if I could make my own list, it probably would look similar to many of yours. But the problem is, most of what we write down on these lists, they're fragile. It's fragile. We have it now but in the blink of an eye, it could be gone. If you wrote down student and grades, one test and it's gone. If you wrote down looks, one bad gene, one accident and it's gone. If you wrote down career, it takes one economic downturn, it's gone. If you wrote down relationships, all it takes is one misunderstanding, it's gone. Some of us were still thinking about our parents and all it took was one bad parent and it feels like we're spiraling. In each and every one of these, when you look at your list, does God have a say in who you are? Because oftentimes I find we're lost not knowing who we are. It's a really dangerous spot to be, to walk through this life and have no sense of identity, no sense of value, no sense of worth. It's a dangerous spot. And one of the questions I'll encourage you to answer is when you again look at your list and you see those three things in front of you, ask this question, who am I without blank? Who am I if I'm not a student? Who am I if I don't have this job or this car? Who am I if my account is empty? Who have, am I if I don't have my looks or my activities? Who am I? That's a great check. And it'll, pro, it'll start to prompt this idea of what are we really standing on. on? Another struggle and a dangerous place to be is not not knowing who you are. It's believing lies about who you are. I'll ask you a second question. Sometimes I hear these statements where it's, I'm not valuable without blank. Anybody ever thought that, said that, lived in that reality? I'm not valuable without a romantic relationship. If there's not someone by my side, I don't have any worth. I'm not valuable without my friendships. I'm not valuable without a corner office. You struggle with that. Have you wrestled with it? It's real. And it's very dangerous. And it was a couple of years ago where I realized how deeply this topic of identity is a part of who we are as people. I remember Ben was the guy back here playing acoustic. Uh, He was jamming out. Uh, When he was the pastor a couple of years ago, I got to sit in on his candidate weekend, which was a time where he came up and spoke just to kind of see how we fit with the ministry. And we sat right behind the stage and we got to ask a couple questions. And I remember this one, I'll remember it forever. One of the pastors, they asked him, what's the most important thing or the, or the hardest thing young adults are facing today? And I sat back and I was like, oh, I can't wait to see what he says, you know? Like we're dealing with all these, the sexual revolution, this porn epidemic, this mental health crisis, all the Gen Z stereotypes. I, I thought he was just going to list them off. And without hesitation, it came out, he said, it's identity. The biggest issue facing young adults today is a lack of identity. They don't know who they are. And I sat back and I was like, oh, dude, I don't think we could hire this guy. But he was right. And over the last 4 years I've seen it over and over again that in the midst of almost every hardship there's a lack of identity or a lie about identity. I sit with a lot of people who who are overcome with worry. And I use that word specifically because I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm talking about worry, just daily life stuff. And you think Maybe the answer to worry is just like another tool or another task, a, a, a mindset thing, and sometimes it is, but a lot of times the core of a, of a worry issue is identity, that the things that make us nervous, like work, school, relationships, finances, it's because those are all built on an identity that's crumbling, that if I don't get that grade, I'm not worth it, if I don't have, and I don't have value, if I don't have that relationship, and we get worried, and we get anxious, and we get upset, we're trying so hard to hold it all together, but it's built on sand, Almost every single hardship we see has something to do with identity or lack thereof. And that's where this series comes. That we are looking at who God says we are. Our God-given identities in Christ. And who God says you are is forever. It's independent and it is enduring. That it is not circumstantial that it's not here today or gone tomorrow, that there is nothing and no situation you can find yourself in where God's opinion and voice over you will change. It's not based on your performance. I mean, can we get an amen about something? Like the fact that we can have a good day and a bad day and God says we are loved and cared for and his child right in both. It's not based on this fleeting sense of trying to earn it. God has spoken over you. And tonight we're talking that you are a child of God. And there is confidence in that. I hope there's peace in that. I hope there's joy in it. I'm going to prove it to you. Look at John 1. And as you flip to John's first chapter, I'm going to pray. God, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the truth that you have spoken over us. I pray by your spirit you would continue to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 1, starting in verse 9. Here in John's first chapter, we're going to start here because he teaches us how to become a child of God. He says this, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. John starts his gospel with the core gospel or starts his uh, yeah gospel with the core gospel message that Jesus came as the true light the only light the savior of the world and when he came he came to bring light that's good news right there he came to offer hope and life and he did it for everyone it says that he came to the world that Jesus as the savior came to give everyone life I could preach that message right now we could pack up and we could go home But we hear that and it's just like old news to us. But Jesus, the savior of the world, came to pay us all life. It wasn't for one person, not for one people group, not even for one place. Jesus paid it for everyone. John continues and he's explaining how Jesus is God. And this is the primary concern, the the primary purpose of John's gospel. That there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that start the New Testament. Each one of them tells the story of Jesus. But every single one of them comes from a different perspective as well as has a different purpose. And so this one is coming to John and his purpose is to teach you Jesus is God. That's his purpose. That's what he wants to get across in his 21 chapters. And as he writes, he's here telling us again that Jesus is God and he always has been God. Jesus existed as the Trinity for all of eternity. He always has been and he always will be. In the past, when we read it in the scriptures, he was God. Today, right now, Jesus is God, and forever and ever He will be God. However, for a finite period of time, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the earth. That should blow our minds. God, who has existed past, present, and future, came here. And when He did it, He put on flesh. And He walked the earth like we walk the earth. I mean, is nobody mind blown by this? This is crazy. It was so crazy, it actually split the ancient world. That this reality that Jesus is God and he came in the flesh divided humanity. Some people didn't believe and some people did. Today, we look at our world and it is still dividing us. This, this simple truth, this one we, we shrug off that Jesus is God in the flesh, it divides the world. Yet there's only two responses to this reality. and the first one, we see it. It's the people who rejected Jesus. The text labels them as the world. And they did not recognize him nor did they receive him. John continues to describe this, and he describes these people as Jesus' own. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's because Jesus has been there forever. In the first part of John, you'll see that Jesus was part of the creation. He was the one speaking the creation. He He was creator. He made these people. They are his own. And he made them in his image. And so Jesus is here coming to a people he created. The imagery is that of a parent who has created a child. But yet the child is unwilling or unable to recognize the parent. Do you feel the heartbreak in that? Jesus was their creator and they rejected him. And in that rejection, they forfeited their right as children of God. Now hear this. Those who reject Jesus are still his creation, but they are not God's children. Those who reject Jesus are still his creation, but they are not God's children. Forever and always, they will be his creation, but they have forfeited the right to be his children. I'm gonna give you an analogy, see if you can catch this. Imagine you build a house, right? You, You put the nails in on the frames, you hang the wall, you put the roof on, you shingle it, you build the house. Forever and always, no matter what, you will be the builder of that house. However, there's a chance you might leave, sell the house, and move into a different house. And now your home is different. Based on the decision you made to leave, You chose to leave, you now live in a new home, and so your relationship to the old home is different. It's no longer your home, it's just the house you built. And that's the language, that's the idea being described here. That God and forever and always will be the creator. He has created us. But because of a decision that we have made to walk away from him, the relationship is different. And that's hard, it's sad, it breaks my own heart. But there's a different response too And this is a response of faith It says yet to those who received him Who believed in his name He gave the right to become children of God There were people who saw and heard Jesus In the flesh They saw him He stood before them They could touch him And he heard them And they followed him They dedicated their lives to following Jesus They had faith That he claimed to be the Messiah And they believed him that they believed he was who he said he was And that response of faith It earned them a right They believed in Jesus And they received a right Now I know we might not all be History buffs in here My wife's a huge history person But you've probably heard of the Bill of Rights right List of ten things I don't know the last eight But I know the first two <laughs> and I, So the first one The freedom of speech Right that's, that's, that's right in there With the freedom of religion Number one we've, we've heard that the second one is the right to bear arms. Feels like it's always in the news. It's, it's, it's a hot topic. But those are two of the first ten bill of rights. Now, here's the tricky part about a right. Is you have the right to do those, but you don't have to. Right? You have the right to freedom of speech, but please, dear God, do not say everything that comes to your mind. <laughs> you have the right to worship and to be religious, but you don't have to be. You have the right to own a gun, but you don't have to own a gun. That's a Right? That's what John's saying here. He's telling us that those who choose to have faith in the Son of God, they accept their right to be his children. You have that choice. Tonight even, you have this choice. It sits before you. Have you ever chosen to follow Jesus, given your life to him, had faith in him? You have that choice, it sits before you. You have that right to be a child. And if you choose that, John says you'll be born of God. Other language for that is reborn or born again. (laughs) I think it's hilarious. It's just like the weirdest. I think it's such a weird concept. So in John 3, there's this encounter between a Pharisee named Nicodemus and Jesus, and and they play it out. So John 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, and he said, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, otherwise known as reborn or born of God. Nicodemus responds, "How how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And it's like, bro, come on, that's nasty, Nicodemus. Like, like I don't even want to paint the picture, but did you, guys, did you guys catch? He's thinking about some weird things that need to go down. But that's what he's talking about. To be born again. Reborn. And he doesn't understand, but because he doesn't understand, he doesn't see that being born of God is not a physical experience. It's a spiritual one. We're talking about new life in Christ here. A spiritual reality. Paul will say a very similar thing in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is born again, if anybody is reborn, if anybody is born of God, they are a new creation. The old, it's gone. The new, it's here. With Jesus, you are made new, reborn, restored, redeemed. You can leave here tonight a born-again Christian. That's the invitation on the table and it means that you are God's child. That you have a new identity. And in your new identity, you have a new father. And you have a new faith. Now I want to talk about the new father thing. Again, this is a spiritual reality and not a physical one. Like you're not born again and then all of a sudden your real earthly dad just like heels over. It. Like that's, that's not how it works. But you have a new father. Jesus described it in John, John 20 verse 17. He says, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Instead, I go to, my, go to my brothers and sisters and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now hear this, Jesus is the only biological son of God. He is the only biological son of God. That is described in Matthew 1:18, if you're ready for another weird passage. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, nobody wants for me to explain that, but before they, they consummated the relationship, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Anybody just been like, oh, what? Uh, virgin birth, how, pregnant by God. Okay. John later reiterates the same idea in John 3.16. Super famous verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so we step back and we think, wait, you're telling me I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. but, But John is telling me and Matthew is telling me that Jesus is the only son of God. No, 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 no. Jesus is the only biological son of God. That we are adopted children of a good heavenly father. Ephesians 1 verse 5. In love, he, that being God, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Here we have the idea of adoption, which I, I love. I think it plays so beautiful be, because adoption is a choice, right? Adoption is a, is a, a choice where the parents and, and the child come together to be a new family, to be, to be united, now I don't have uh, the clearest picture of, uh, picture of adoption because I've never been through it and I've, I've never adoption, adopted, but I've, I've seen Like Mike, which maybe also has Jane Smith if we're, if we're going there. But like, I've seen the movie Like Mike and I know that adoption is a two-way street. Because if you've seen the movie, the parents, they come in and, and they want to adopt the kid and so they, they, they pick out their child, but yet the kid has to come in and, and affirm that same thing. That neither person is leaving unless both parties are involved. And that's the beauty of a new father. It's the beauty of adoption that God has chosen you. All of you, every one of you, 2 Peter 3, 9 will tell you that, that the father is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. That is God's heart for his people, not anybody to perish, but everyone to become to repentance. That repentance word is born again. Reborn, born of God, that is God's desire. That you have been chosen by a heavenly father who is holy, who is loving, and who is in control. That God has chosen you. He's chosen you first. He's chosen you over and over and over again. And what does that teach us about identity? It means that you have value and worth regardless of what you feel or experience because God has chosen you in the highs and in the lows you have value and worth because God has chosen you in my life this has been one of probably my hardest struggles that through middle school and probably most of high school I existed in a friend group where I was like right on the cusp anybody have that reality? that it, it depended on the week but sometimes I was in and they loved me and I was, I was one of the, the guys and I was included and I was invited but there were other weeks I was out Other months, I was out, where I didn't get the text, I wasn't invited to the plans, I wasn't cool, and it was in those moments, my relationships dictated who I was, because you know what, when I was at the bottom, standing there, sitting, looking at my phone, waiting for someone to text me, you know what I felt? Not worthy. Romantically, before I met my wife, I was in a lot of pretty terrible relationships, And every single time I either put myself out there and was rejected or was in a relationship and the other person opted out of the relationship, you know what I felt in those moments? Worthless. Like I had no value. Like nobody over and over and over again felt in my life like they were choosing me. Do you recognize that you are chosen by God? You are valued as his child. He has chosen you. John 3.16, I'm going to bring it back. For God so loved the world, that's you. That he gave his one and only son, Jesus, his only biological son. He gave him so that whoever believes him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the price he paid when he chose you. You have a new father. And not only that, you have a new faith. And our faith is in Jesus who as the son of God died for us. Again, we're coming back to this idea because I feel like we grow so cold to the gospel message. And I see it a lot that this is heard by people, it's said by people, but then it doesn't change anything. But faith changes your life. I've seen a lot of Christians who label themselves by Christ's name, but don't live anything like Christ. I've seen a lot of people who have faith, but that faith doesn't impact them Monday through Saturday. And it's these people that I want to tell you that's not faith. That person's not really born again. Another way I see it is people who have faith, but it feels like they're just borrowing it from their parents. They grew up and their parents labeled them a Christian, and so they hold this identity, but only because their parents told them they were. And so when life comes and decisions need to be made and you have some autonomy and some independence as a college student and a young adult, you're trying to figure out, do I really believe this? Or have I just inherited my parents' faith? It's not bad. I hope your parents gave you faith. I hope they, they lent some of their faith to you. But that's not enough. We need to make our own choice of faith. That it can't just be something we inherited, we hold on to, but then we put on the shelf. No, it's something that actively changes our life. First John 3, verse 9, I'm going to read it to you in the ESV. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been what born of God. Some clarity here. John is not saying you'll never make a mistake. Like can we take a deep breath? Like, it's OK. We're human. We will make a mistake. We will fall short. You will sin. As your pastor, full transparency. Sin today. <laughs> right? I'm a human. I make mistakes. But what John is talking about here is we do not make it our practice to live in sin. That yes, we will have shortcomings and yes, we will have downfalls. But in the midst of that, we don't let our life be marked by a pattern of sin. No, no, no. We let our lives be marked by a pattern of pursuing Jesus. That's the call of a Christian. That Jesus gave his life for us and our only adequate response is to faithfully give our lives back to him. That's it. If you claim to have faith, here it is for you. This is the answer. It is the only answer. So, what does it look like to give our lives back to Jesus? It's to live as Jesus did. 1 John 3, verse 2 through 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God. He's writing to Christians. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appeared, we shall be like him. All of us have this hope. Let's purify ourselves just as he is pure. John is telling us again, we shall be his children. But in his, as his children, we have this process of purifying ourselves. And this sounds really intense, it sounds really hard, and sometimes it is. Sometimes it's hard. Because some of us, we have this entrenchment, this this stronghold, this addiction, this dependency in our life that we, we have fought to overcome. And it's hard. To that I would tell you, keep fighting. Link arms with your brothers and sisters and seek your heavenly father and keep fighting. But a lot of times, becoming like Christ isn't quite that hard. In this new faith, remember we have a new father that changes everything. Anybody ever seen uh, tendencies in themselves that their parents have? Right? You start to act or do things your parents do and you're like, whoa. Happens all the time to me. Happens all of the time My dad is an avid reader And you're like Oh how much is avid Like 50 to 80 books a year Like my dad reads people And I grew up And I watched him And I was like That is so boring That is so weird I just clocked 60 books this year I don't, I don't know what happened to me But somewhere I picked that up My mom She's always been crafty Always had this ability To just throw things together And make a project And do something cool Growing up I was like I don't get it I don't know how to do that As I Now have a house. I don't know if you guys knew that. Uh, uh, I found out I like doing projects. I like being crafty. I like doing those things. But not everything I picked up from my parents was great. My dad, when he gets frustrated, he's a deep sire. Anybody else have dads like that? You're just like everybody in the room's like, oh my gosh, this is going to go down. Like it's just like, but he gets frustrated. And you know what happens when I get frustrated? I'm a deep sire. My mom, she's such a hard worker, she will grind. She is so busy all the time and she's trying to work hard but guess what, she's prone to overwork. Guess who else is prone to overwork? And do you ever think I sat back for a second and was like, you know, one day I'd love to grow up and deep sigh every time I get frustrated and overwork myself. (laughs) No, I never did that. I was just around them. I was simply just their child. They loved me, they invested in me I loved them and I invested in them And now I'm like them Children we have this tendency To look and to act like our, pre- our, our parents And there's a good thing We have a perfect heavenly father And we can look and act Like our heavenly father by simply being his child And living in relationship with him I can invite the team up How do you begin to look like Jesus How do you begin To purify yourselves You spend time with God. Now, I know there's some probably consumeristic Christians out here that don't like that answer. You would rather have a three step plan on what it looks like to purify yourself. But oftentimes, the most transformative and most powerful experience we can have as Christians is simply going to our Heavenly Father. So, do you spend time with God? And it's in that place you'll get your application. You'll get your conviction, you'll get your encouragement, but you have to get with God. Beyond that, you need to get around as people. That I love my parents and they have shaped me, but my friends maybe did even more than them. I'd spend a couple hours a day with my parents, but I'd spend hours and hours on, with my friends at school and, and at sports and at activities As a college student and a young adult, the chances you spend even just the percentage of time with your immediate family is probably pretty low. But you spend time constantly in community. And those people shape you and they form you and they should make you look more like Jesus. If we do these things intentionally, we'll get to live in our reality that we are children of God and we'll get to experience and become more like Jesus. Here's the thing. I love the identity conversation. I do. But the hardest part of it is we know it and we don't take it. We don't embrace it. And so that's my challenge for you guys. Over this next three weeks or so, would you embrace your identity as a child of God? Would you embrace who he says you are? And that might take daily getting with him. But if you do, the promise from John 10, 10 is you will experience the life from the full. And I pray that you would. Pray with me. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for John and his faithfulness to pen it. Thank you for your spirit in speaking it. I pray that we would just become your children. That if we've never made that decision, we would make it right now, God. And if we have become your children, if we are walking with you, I pray that you would lead us into this new faith, into the, with this new father, and we would live as different people. So God, lead us in the way that you can and you alone can. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.